You're listening to the Podcast Network. Find more great podcasts at www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Welcome back to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. I believe this is episode number 17. Now, for people that are listening along as we record this, uh, we must apologize. It's been a month since our last recording. Uh, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been a month since our last episode. Now, I'm going to take the blame for that up front, and uh, it might explain some of the things that happened during this episode. Now, David and I did record another episode a couple of weeks ago. But unfortunately, when I went back to edit it, I noticed that we had some technical challenges. Uh, a new version of the software that I used to record it had let me down, and it, the, the recording just wasn't usable. So we had to, um, we've had to reschedule, and we're going to attempt to remake history by doing the 90-minute <laughs> episode again. Now, I was chatting to David on Skype a little bit earlier today, and he said that he, he was feeling a little bit disheartened at having to do it again, and I... I felt like asking him the question I always ask myself in times of great uh, moral stress, which is, what would Napoleon do? But then I realized if he were Napoleon, he'd probably have me shot. So I realized, (laughs) court-martial. I I think that uh, that's a a pretty fair assessment, my friend. Be careful what you ask for, you may get it. So, I, you, you occasionally in our in, in in our comments with each other, either uh, in in writing uh, on on instant messaging or when we talk uh, on the phone, uh, you 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 call me uh, sir. Uh, if you start calling me sire, I may have you shot. <laughs> well, I do apologize, David. Uh, as I often say, my only job on this podcast is pushing the record button, and uh, sometimes I can't even get that right. Uh, although, well. Your job is a lot more important than that, and, and, and by the way, for all of my whining about having to do it again, I, I'm surprised you didn't point out that as an educator, as a teacher, with multiple sections of the same thing, uh, I've often had to repeat a lecture or a lesson or, or, or some activity uh, multiple times in one day, and so if I can't handle doing one episode over a week or two uh, later, uh, then there's probably something wrong. So we'll be fine. Well, yet again, I do apologize, but sometimes the technology just doesn't do what it's damned supposed to do. So let me, let's, um, remind people where we left off for those that, um, aren't listening to these back to back. First of all, I guess we, we really should start off by thanking everybody that's, uh, been involved in providing us with feedback since the last episode. We've had lots of great emails and comments and uh, and even some debate on the blog and, and in the forums about Napoleon and whether or not you and I have a bias. And it's it's all been great. We, we really do appreciate the community that's building up around this show, don't we? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I love it. And I've tried to to get to some of uh, the emails on a regular basis. I apologize to anyone out there who's listening who sent me an email or maybe hasn't heard back from me just yet. 
I'm desperately trying to finish a book, uh, and I have this this awful requirement in my life called a job, uh, and another much more delightful requirement in my life called a wife who occasionally expects me to uh, pay some attention to her as well. So I I just haven't been able to keep up with all the emails, particularly a few of them which have asked me for some detailed information or some uh, serious uh, thoughts. But but I will get to them. They don't disappear into cyberspace. So uh, please please uh, hold on, and and you will hear from me. Uh, and to all of you, I encourage you to write to us. I love hearing the commentary or reading the commentary. As as Cameron said, we have very positive feedback. Uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about whether or not we will uh, forge forward uh, and do what Julius Caesar and possibly Alexander or Charlemagne or whoever else uh, in the future. And, and I can assure you that I have every intention of doing that. Whether or not Cameron will want to tolerate having to deal with me is another question. But but I think that would be great fun. And, and all kidding aside, Cameron and I have talked about it, and 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 we'd love to do it too. So. Uh, you know, just when you were uh, thinking it was uh, safe to to fire up your computer and 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 uh, go over to the podcast network, uh, you you may yet find that Napoleon will be done someday, maybe, uh, only to be replaced uh, by uh, Caesar. Now, um, I'm trying to remember what we covered the last time we recorded this, and uh, I think I started. Uh, you gave me the opportunity last time to. Uh, start with reading a couple of bits from a couple of books that I have. Would you mind if I uh, take the same liberty yet again, sir? I would be very surprised if you were not to do so. <laughs> Thank you. And disappointed because what you come up with is good. You, you you have a very nice library apparently and you come up with some wonderful things, including some that I've not seen. And including some which come out of books that you've written. Well, those are the best, of course. <laughs> so uh, as... as uh, uh, the reason I'm going to read this is because I realize not everybody probably reads the blog that goes along with the podcast. And I, I put up a post a couple of weeks ago about a book that uh, I was fortunate enough to acquire over eBay. And there's a there's a lengthy story behind the acquisition of it, which I won't go into detail, but finally it turned up. It's a first edition from 1894 of a book of 330 reproductions of famous paintings pertaining to Napoleon that were sort of edited together and commented on by a gentleman by the name of John Stoddard. And I just really wanted to share with the audience um, what Stoddard wrote. He wrote a, a, quite a beautiful and eloquent introduction to this book talking about Napoleon. And um, I, I just wanted to read some of it out because I thought that uh, it very eloquently describes some of the things that we've been talking about in the comment section on the show. Towards the end of this rather lengthy introduction, he says, The memory of Napoleon resembles a gigantic cliff emerging from the sea of time. The waves of calumny may break against it. The lightning's bolt of hatred may descend upon its brow. The cutting winds of sarcasm and malice may attack its surface. The clouds of misunderstanding may at times conceal it. And even the disintegrating touch of time may strive to mar its massiveness. But presently the waves are stilled, the tempest disappears, the mists all clear away, and lo, the cliff is there, serene and indestructible. 
Nothing is more instructive than a study of this path which they commemorate for 20 years. Oh, now now you're now you're going into the part that I was going to read, but oh, but go ahead. Sorry, don't don't let me stop you. <laughs> well, no, please be my guest. Nothing is more instructive than a study of this path which they commemorate. For 20 years, the history of Bonaparte was the history of Europe. And even now, whatever route we take from Paris to the pyramids or from Madrid to Moscow, one name continually greets us, carved on the mountains trodden by his legions, reflected in the rivers where his shadow fell, and traced upon a hundred fields where it was whispered fondly by unnumbered lips, ere they were closed in death. It is the magic name, Napoleon. It's beautiful, isn't it? And then- oh, it's wonderful. And by the way, let me put a plug in for that book. Uh, that book uh, is is a super book. It's 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 actually available at used bookstores and online occasionally. It's not impossible to find a copy. The reproductions are 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 quite good, particularly if just in in the volume that, that they represent. There's so many of them, and uh, the commentary is quite useful as well. Yeah, and I I think Stoddard just <laughs> writes so beautifully. It's it's writing from another era, you know, very poetic and majestic in the way that he sums it up. But also, you know, this this is a book that was written in the same century that Napoleon lived, worked, and died. It was written, you know, <coughs> slightly seventy years after he passed away, and and it. It, 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 he was already obviously a subject that was much discussed, much debated. Was he a good guy? Was he a bad guy? Would his memory die out? In fact, Stoddard says earlier on in that introduction, yet there has never been an epoch since his death when the career of the great Corsican excited so much interest as now. It will not die out. The theme is as colossal as his genius, as many-sided as his empire, as brilliant as his victories. The literature which treats of him is constantly increasing. New memoirs every year call forth fresh statements and critiques by shedding light upon obscure points in his, his, his <laughs> sorry, in his history. It is Napoleon the man who is now being specially portrayed. The result completely demolishes the theory that he was a monster of selfishness devoid of human sympathies so it um you know it's obviously a subject was which was much in debate over a hundred years ago as it uh, continues to be today and and i'm quite sure will be a century henceforth well that's the thing about napoleon that makes him so special he's he, he really is in this regard i believe uh, and I'm speaking only 200 years or, or 150 years after after a lot of uh, what happened with him. Uh, but he's really very much like Caesar and Alexander uh, in the sense that a thousand years from now, two thousand years from now, uh, we will still be as humans studying uh, Napoleon as we still study uh, Caesar and Alexander, assuming that global warming doesn't do us all in. Uh, and, and that's very special because there are not that many people in history who have that kind of staying power. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, you know, 200 years is not 2,000 years. And, and, you know, only time will tell whether Napoleon, uh, will, will, will in fact achieve that, that standard. And, and you and I, uh, won't be around to to debate it, I, I fear. But but uh, Speak I yourself. think he will, and 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 he he is certainly a very special person. Not only in terms of he the person, but also and more importantly, uh, probably in terms of his impact on on history. 
Indeed. And uh, the other thing that I uh, <coughs> wanted to read out before we get back into the linear history, well, this is kind of linear, as um, listeners hopefully will recall, when we left Napoleon in episode, at the end of episode 16, mm. it was uh, at the end of 1806, the beginning of 1807, he had, uh, he was, the, the, Russian armies under Tsar Alexander were making their way towards Poland. Napoleon saw this as as an attack, the beginnings of an attack, and marched to meet them and spent a little bit of time towards the end of 1806 in Poland courting um, the very beautiful and very young Maria Valeska. But um, I wanted to read this out because, again, I think it sheds some light on his character that you don't often hear about. And if it's one thing I really enjoy about the feedback we're getting from the listeners it's the people who leave a comment or write an email and say wow you know i'd i'd only ever heard of napoleon as being this little hitler ambitious tyrant i really had i really had no idea that he did all of these amazing things and was such a much more complex and incredible character who who achieved so many good things and this is a letter this is from um, napoleon's letters edited by jm thompson and uh, it's a letter that he wrote in uh, March of 1807 to his brother Louis, who at the time was the King of Holland, thanks, of course, to Napoleon's uh, graces and his uh, Corsican familial ties to his brothers, whether they were a good or a bad thing, we, we have discussed at other points. But to me, this is an interesting letter. Now, let's everyone keep in mind, this is a letter that he wrote to his brother. This wasn't sub- something that was... Uh, published as a Grand Armée bulletin for public viewing. It wasn't in the Moniteur. This was a private letter to his brother, the King of Holland. And he writes, The news I hear is so extraordinary that I cannot believe it is true. They tell me that you have restored to the nobles in your states their titles and privileges. Is it possible that you are so short-sighted as not to see how fatal such a step would be to you, to your people, to France and to myself? How could you, a French prince, have violated your simplest vow to maintain equality among your subjects? I refuse to believe it can be true. You are as good as renouncing the French throne. For a man who has broken his oath, a man who has robbed a nation of the fruit of 15 years fighting, toil and endeavour, would be unworthy of such a position. I have, too, my own just grounds of complaint. For a long time past, you have consistently acted against my advice. This cannot go on. My ambassador has instructions to inform you in so many words that... Unless you revoke this measure, he is under orders to leave Holland, and I have done with you. You are an ungrateful brother, and the advisers under whose influence you have fallen are a pack of criminals. Further, I tell you this plainly, since you care nothing for good advice, that I will not have Frenchmen wearing your order, so you can save yourself the trouble of conferring it on anyone. I have asked my ambassador for a copy of the Act Re-Establishing Nobility. If this measure is not rescinded, I shall look upon you as an inveterate foe. But perhaps I am making mountains out of molehills. The simple truth is, you have lost your head. Unless you retract this measure, look out for the consequences. You shall no longer be a French citizen, nor a prince of my blood. Haven't you sense enough to see that if your claim to the Dutch throne were to rest on noble birth, you would be at the bottom of the list? Is this all I am to expect of you? At the present rate, the next claim to a title will be to have fought against France and to have sold ships to the English. Every local grandee will take up old claims to a title. 
could nobody make you realize that you were alienating the people of Amsterdam? Indeed, every Dutchman, an order of nobility is bearable in a military country. In a commercial one, it is intolerable. I think better of the humblest shopkeeper in Amsterdam than of the highest noble in Holland. Now, again, this is a, a, a fairly scathing letter from Napoleon to his brother, which wasn't uncommon. And, but, no, it's not, and his 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 family oftentimes deserved it. I mean, you know, he says, you know, you don't like my advice, you don't follow my advice. Well, if there's anything that uh, uh, his brothers didn't do, it was follow his advice, and if there's anything they should have done, it was to follow his advice. Uh, Napoleon's uh, family, uh, you know, books, whole books have been written about the relationship between Napoleon and his brothers and his sisters and, and so on. Uh, a friend of mine wrote a little series of short uh, articles about them. I think he called them imperial millstones, uh, and and that's uh, that's really uh, pretty much what they were to a large extent. You can you can find that they did some good things. Uh, Joseph, in particular, sometimes uh, showed a little promise, but but as a general rule, uh, they were far more trouble uh, to Napoleon than they were ever worth. Uh, Napoleon probably would have been better off finding other people to put on these thrones, you know, pulling out somebody, you know, from the, the local nobility or whatever who, who who might have been loyal to the French uh, or simply incorporating them into his empire. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what would have been better, but, but a lot of his uh, brothers uh, really, really let him down. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, sometimes they, they, they thought they were doing the right thing. Uh, you know, you make somebody a king, and it's not real surprising that they begin to think that, gee, if I'm a king, perhaps I ought to be able to uh, do what I want to. It's it's my country now. Of course, I'm a loyal uh, ally to uh, France, and I'm not going to betray Napoleon and take sides against him, <clears throat> although Murad certainly did uh, in, in Naples. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, other than that, maybe I should be allowed to do what I want to, and Napoleon was having none of that. Uh, Napoleon put his brothers on the throne so that he, Napoleon, would be able to maintain a fairly high level of, of control. It also has to be said, based on the letter that you read, that Napoleon was a very, very good politician. And he understood that the people of, of uh, Amsterdam, uh, the Dutch, were probably not going to take very kindly to a hereditary monarchy that that, that France might very well have uh, learned to accept, uh, and and uh, he was giving some, frankly, some pretty good political advice to his brother, uh, and uh, some advice that he shouldn't have had to give, you know. But Napoleon was brilliant. We have to remember that Napoleon was a, a genius. He's one of the most brilliant people in human history. There's been a lot of them in, in his company, but but uh, his brothers were not on that list, and uh, so we have to recognize that we cannot necessarily assume that his brothers are going to show the common sense and the the political acumen and so on that that Napoleon did. Speaking of uh, lack of acumen, I guess that brings us back to the Battle of Eylau. Now. Uh, here we uh, we've had uh, the the Russian forces under the uh, leadership of German Count von Bennigsen 
And we, we talked a little bit, uh, I, I've got to stop saying that. We talked a little bit about in the episode that no one's had, no one got to hear yet. Uh, that'll be the last time I will say that in this episode. Um, we, the Phantom episode. <laughs> that's right. So it's circling out there in cyberspace somewhere. <laughs> Actually, it's now warbling. And by the way, in case the, in case the people are wondering, or in case our listeners are wondering, you know, what kind of technical problems could there have been? Uh, it was a very, very distorted sound, sort of a uh, something like you uh, imagine a, one of these funny mirrors that you have at uh, circuses or, or, or fairs, you know, where you stand in front of them and they make you seem tall and you move and they make you seem skinny and so on. Well, this was uh, a, a an oral version of that. There was a warble that completely distorted our words and. And and Cameron uh, let me know about this, and he said, "Listen, David, you you listen to it and tell me what you think." Because he he thought, well, if 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 I thought it was fine, then maybe we'd go with it. But it was awful. Uh, three minutes into the show, trust me, all of you would have turned us off and wondered what in the world were we doing? That clearly Markham had too much of his medication or something because uh, it was just ridiculous. Okay, enough on that, David. Let's move on. we got a lot yes, to sir. get through. Now, Count von Benningsen, I said he was a German, and one of the questions about the Battle of Eilau is what the hell Benningsen was really thinking um, because he was vastly outnumbered when he encountered Napoleon. And... I think it's important for people to understand a little bit about who this who this guy was, a little bit about his background, and a little bit about the political realities of Russia at the time to perhaps put this battle into perspective. Now, Benningsen was uh, a German who had fought in the Seven Years' War. He ended up going and working for Tsar Paul I in Russia and was uh, fired from military service by Tsar Paul and then is known to have played a quite an active role in the assassination of Tsar Paul. Uh, listeners may recall that early on we talked about the fact that uh, Tsar Paul had actually come to a point after some earlier battles with France where he was in the mind that it was probably a good idea to make peace with the Napoleonic France and was uh, promptly assassinated. There are... Uh, you know, some suggestions that uh, his son Alexander played a role in that, which of course wasn't uncommon in feudal circles. But uh, Bennington absolutely was. You know, there's it was either him or the soldiers under his command that went in and assassinated Paul. So then Alexander is now obviously the Tsar of Russia. And I, I think there's some great stuff in... Um, Adam Zamoyski's book, Moscow 1812, which uh, really explains the, the political realities of France, how Alexander was facing a lot of uh, pressure from his uh, family, from his nobles, that he must... You mean, by the way, the political uh, realities of Russia, not France. Sorry, did I say France? I'm <laughs> afraid so. <laughs> Sorry, the, thanks for picking me up on that. The, the political realities of Russia, where there was... Uh, very strong feeling that Napoleon need to be stopped for a whole variety of reasons. Number one, I'm sure one of the main ones was they didn't want the French Revolution to be successful because of the consequences for the rest of the feudal heads of Europe. So, well, sure. that brings us to the Battle of Elau. Napoleon with about 220,000 soldiers against Benningsen with only 120,000, David. 
take us and, through and, it. And, and Cameron, I, I I hate to do this to you twice in in a couple of minutes. Uh, <laughs> That's what you're here for, David. It's the, it's the Battle of Friedland, not the Battle of Eilau. We 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 moved past to Eilau. We've we've <laughs> dealt with the his winter oh. with Marie Valeska, and now oh we're looking. Uh, at the beginning of spring in 1807. And as you say, uh, Benningson is outnumbered roughly 220 to 120. So, you know, we're not talking about a small amount. We're talking about 100,000 people on the ground, and that's a lot. Uh, and uh, Benningson, nevertheless, is determined that he's going to drive Napoleon, you know, out of, the, out of Germany entirely. He's going to chase them all the way back to France, as far as he's concerned. Uh, and uh, uh, the the action starts really around uh, Danzig, which is modern day Gdansk uh, in in Poland. If you if you know the Polish map today, uh, Napoleon had been laying siege to the city. It was a very very strategically important city. Uh, perhaps just as importantly, it was a major supply depot. It had just an enormous amount of gunpowder of of of, of uh, arms of food, uh, no doubt wine and so forth and so on. And and uh, uh, the, the the city falls uh, to to the French. Uh, Bennington tries to relieve the siege, to raise the siege, uh, that fails, uh, and 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 the French, of course, uh, gain this enormous supply of of material, which is extremely important in warfare. You know, if you can capture major supply depots of the enemy. It's it's a uh, it's a huge turnaround. They don't get it, and you do, uh, and that can make a, an enormous difference in, in, in a campaign. So now the the Russians, uh, for all of their bravado, are are beginning to move in the wrong direction from their point of view. They're now moving east. They they head uh, uh, back uh, to near uh, Heilsberg in eastern Prussia. Uh, that's a fortified city. Uh, the, the, the territory was fairly well situated to, for, for defense. Uh, and and uh, on the 10th of June, again, 1807, uh, the French and the Russians engage in a, a battle, which a little bit like Eilau is, is kind, of a, kind of a draw. Nowhere near as, as bloody as Eilau. I don't have the numbers handy on that. Uh, but... Like Eilau, uh, it's a victory for the French because the French hold the battlefield and the uh, Russians have to retreat. And that's that, after all, is the bottom line for victory. No matter how many people are killed, and, and you can have victories where you could even theoretically lose more soldiers than, than your enemy, if you hold the ground that you're fighting over and, and the other guys have to leave, then, then that's a victory. Uh, and it may be a victory, you know, uh, a Pyrrhic victory. It may be in name only. It may it, it may not be much of a victory. Uh, but there you sit, and there they go, and that's what counts. So Benningson now is moved all the way back uh, into East Prussia, uh, where where his base camp was. This is where he started from, and that's just, this is where his supplies were, and where he had always figured, you know, uh, he could retreat to if all. If all hell broke, broke loose, well, all hell broke loose, uh, and now here he sits uh, in uh, Friedland. It's not very far from Eilau. 
on 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 the the the, the Ale River. Uh, it's now in the the little tiny enclave of Russia known as Kaliningrad. Uh, if you look at the map, you'll see this enormous country of Russia. And then you you go across Ukraine uh, and and into the north uh, east corner of Poland, and you'll see this little sort of triangular piece of territory, uh, which has the word Russia on a, on a map, and you might say, what in the world is that all about? Well, this is a little warm, uh, rather cold weather uh, port that, that uh, the Soviet Union uh, grabbed many years ago and, and has managed to hold on to even after all of the changes that have taken place. And the, the main city of, of, of that little region is also called uh, Kaliningrad. And both Eilau and Friedland are located in this little tiny area. By the way, I, I, I was there a few years ago. There's a couple of very nice museums there. there there's burial grounds for French and, and, and Russian uh, soldiers. Uh, it, it's really worth seeing, and, and you know you have to get a, a visa to go to Russia and so on, but once you get there, uh, you've got two of the most important battlefields in, in the Polyonic history, you know, a half an hour drive away from each other. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's well worth the, uh, the trip, although I do advise you to have a, a good Russian translator uh, with you because uh, they don't speak English uh, all that much in, in that region, and they certainly aren't likely to speak French or, or German or, or whatever other language uh, our listeners uh, might prefer. So, that didn't end well for the Russians. And then, well, no. uh, it, this kind it of, it, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I was going to say, it, this kind of, uh, prompted Tsar Alexander to sue for peace, which brings us to the, uh, Treaty of Tilsit, which. Well, let me, let me interrupt you a little bit. We, we did, I, I, I thought maybe we want to talk a little bit about the Battle of, of Friedland itself. Uh, the Battle of Friedland is, 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 is something that's worth, uh, that's worth mentioning, uh, and and before we before we get to Tilsit, uh, unless you think we're just you know horribly bad on time, and here it's only a half a half an hour so far, so we've got so I thought time for <laughs> I, I thought you'd said enough. I thought you <laughs> I thought you were over Friedland, but that's all right. Oh no, let's no, get no. Into we've it. only we've only got we've only got him up to Friedland because I think it's important that that our our, our listeners uh, hear a little bit about the battle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You know, for, first of all, uh, Napoleon uh, is not the first one to get there. Marshal Jean Lan is the first uh, French uh, force to to arrive, uh, and and Lan, of course, at that stage is actually outnumbered uh, by the Russians. And so, uh, uh, Benningson, to his credit as a military leader, says, "Aha! I've got the advantage now." And I'd, I'd better make good use of it because it isn't going to last. Napoleon's coming up with the main force, and and he attacks Alon's forces uh, early in the day. But uh, Lon Lon holds actually late late afternoon. I'm sorry, <clears throat> Lon holds out uh, through the evening. They break off for the for the night of the 13th. Uh, the, the 14th now. Uh, the attack uh, continues. Lon continues to hold out, even though he's greatly outnumbered. Uh, Marshal uh, Jean Lon really, you know, shows what he's made of by by holding out against a superior uh, Russian force. Now Napoleon shows up at noon, and Napoleon has uh, 
a much, much larger force with him. He doesn't have the entire uh, 220,000 because he's had to leave some along the line. Uh, whenever you are moving forward, you have to leave soldiers along the line to secure your lines of communication, to make sure that someone doesn't take any little flanking action against you, come around and attack you from the rear, uh, and so on. So he's losing men. Ironically, Benningson may have gained a few because, of course, as he's retreating, he's rolling up whoever he may have left behind him to secure his lines of communication. But Napoleon shows up with a pretty good uh, group of folks. Uh, and by 5.30 uh, in the uh, evening on the 14th of June, he's, he's ready to attack. And it's a pretty successful battle, to say the least. And it also has uh, its, its moments of glory. Uh, I sent you, uh, Cameron, a number of, of, of engravings, and I don't recall if you've had a chance to put them up or not. I'll put them up with Mes this uh, episode, yeah. Messonnier, uh, for example, has a very, very famous painting of Napoleon up on a slight rise, doffing his hat uh, as as the heavy cuirassiers roar by on their on their horses and their sabers are raised in the air uh, in in salute to uh, Napoleon to their emperor uh, and there's a lot of that in this battle uh, Marshal Le Michel Ney uh, leads several charges and when I was there you can you can get up into the church tower where Napoleon uh, actually stood and and look out and you can see the curve of the river you can see and I neglected to mention this a while ago but but the Russians have got their backs to the river which is really really stupid you don't get into a defensive position where you have no easy line of retreat and it's not that easy for an army to retreat across a river unless you've got good bridges so you can see where they were and you can see the field where Marshal Ney and others would have swept across uh, and, and driven literally thousands of, 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 of Russians in, into the river. Uh, but the other thing that you can see from, from that tower is the position of the French heavy artillery. Once the, the artillery is put in place, uh, the artillery is, is able to sweep the the Russian positions uh, with devastating results. Uh, basically, I think I said in, in one in, in my dummies book, uh, uh, you know, it's like target practice. They're 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 blowing these guys away. It's like going to a county fair or something and shooting the little ducks, you know, in the in the arcade. Uh, and 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 as a result, uh, the the Russian left and and the center. Uh, pretty much collapse. Only the Russian right manages to maintain any kind of order, and that's primarily because uh, uh, General uh, Grouchy, Emmanuel Grouchy, uh, who was in charge of the cavalry on that side of the battlefield, uh, has some success, but he he fails to pursue it. He doesn't he doesn't push it. Uh, and, and as a result, a, a, a fair amount of the Russian army, including General Benningson, is able to escape. Uh, Napoleon sends uh, 
some cavalry units uh, to, to, to follow them and to try to create as much havoc as possible. Uh, he had not done this, you may recall, dear listeners, uh, after the Battle of Austerlitz. He allowed the Russians to withdraw in good order, uh, thinking that uh, that would be conducive to a lasting peace. He now knows, of course, that that's not the way to deal with the Russians, and so he sends his forces ahead, uh, and, and they, they do some damage, but Bennington and the army uh, gets away. Uh, and, you know, by 11 o'clock, if you walk through the town, thousands and thousands of people dead in the town, on the field, around the river, on both sides of the river, and so on. 10,000 French were killed, but at least 20,000 Russians were killed. Uh, the Russians had retreated, retreated, and they were done. I mean, that was it. I mean, there may have been some folks, the Tsar, no doubt, thinking, oh, we can, you know, fight again. Uh, but cooler heads prevailed, uh, and and that was it. The, the Russian uh, forces elsewhere begin to withdraw. Another major uh, depot at Königsberg uh, was evacuated by the Russians, uh, and, and, and the French gained all of those uh, supplies. Uh, you know, the, the Russians retreat to Tilsit, and, you know, Marshal Murat, who's the head of the cavalry, he charges up, and, and at this point, you know, the Tsar says, okay, enough is enough. We, you know, Murat's already here. Napoleon can't be far behind. This is just getting ridiculous. Uh, and so they basically uh, uh, sue for peace. Uh, the Tsar sends a courier to Napoleon saying, listen, uh, I would like to sit down with you, mano y mano, man on man, and talk about this. Well, Napoleon's delighted. Napoleon says, this is exactly what I want. None of this uh, subordinate you know, stuff going on here. I'm going to sit down with the, the czar of all the Russias, as he was known, and get this young whippersnapper uh, uh, whipped into shape, and uh, maybe, just maybe, we can have a lasting peace. Because Cameron, think about this now. The only enemy in the field right now on the entire continent is Russia. Probably Prussia is sort of there, but the Prussians have already had their butts thoroughly kicked. Uh, the, the king of Prussia is, is in the camp, uh, feeling rather sheepish, I should imagine. But if we can neutralize the Russians, so Napoleon must have thought, I control the continent. And then what can England do? They have no more allies. They've got nowhere to turn. There's no one there to help them. Maybe, just maybe, we can get the, the British to also settle for peace. And we can all go back to doing what we should be doing to begin with, and that's making the lives of our citizens, whether they're Russian or Prussian or Austrian or British or French or Spanish, making the lives of our citizens better. Well, it's a noble thought. We all know it doesn't quite work out that way. But uh, a meeting is arranged, and Prussia is starting to get very nervous. Well, quel surprise, you know. Prussia drug Russia into this war. 
rather quickly after 1805, foolishly, I should add, uh, they got wiped out rather quickly, uh, and they can figure they're not going to do too well in any peace settlement. So they, they play their last ace in the hole, Queen Louisa. The day before the meeting uh, between Alexander and Napoleon, Queen Louisa, uh, a beautiful young woman, comes to visit Napoleon. Now let me make a, a, a couple of quick comments about Queen Louisa because we've had one or two emails about my comments in the past. Queen Louisa was a member, the leader, really, of what we would call the War Party in Prussia. She was one of those people largely responsible for persuading the King of Prussia to declare war on the French, to go after Napoleon. In eight, after 1805, after after Alsace in 1806. Now, this was foolish, and Napoleon and his bulletins in 1805 and especially 1806 and 1807 really castigates her and takes her to task for this and says some some not very kind things about her. And from my point of view, a lot of what he had to say was fairly justified in that I think she played a major role and getting her husband, the king, to involve their country in a war they could not possibly win and which was likely to bring disaster upon them. So I think that's a fair criticism. That said, it's also fair to say that the queen was popular with her people. She was considered smart. She was considered very patriotic. She would go out and mingle with the soldiers and, and try to inspire them. Uh, she, she understood international politics and so on. And the people of Prussia thought very highly of her. But, you know, thinking very highly of her is one thing. Uh, being drugged into a war by her is another. So my opinion of her is not as high as, as, as some folks' uh, opinion is. But I, I do understand that that he that she was popular with her people. Uh, nevertheless, she did try, uh, perhaps even to seduce Napoleon quite literally into going easy on Prussia, and Napoleon was having uh, none of it. So after that, the uh, can I the the, the, can, the young can yeah, I, go ahead can I butt in. Uh, please do. I've gone nonstop here for a while. I'll let you. I'll let you have a sip of your medicine while I interject and put in a few points. Uh, well, believe it or not, I managed to squeeze in a, some medicine hardly without skipping a beat there. I couldn't even tell. Well done. Um, so some, some of the just uh, going back to the Battle of Friedland, a couple of interesting points I think there. One is when the Russians were retreating, there was an interesting precedent set which will come back into the discussion uh, during the in, the invasion of Russia in 1812, which was that uh, the Russians had a scorched earth policy as they were retreating, where they were setting fire to Friedland, which actually, in, in this case, uh, backfired on them somewhat because the uh, you mentioned that they had a river behind them. The fire sort of overtook their retreat and burnt down the pontoon before the Russian troops got over it. And uh, they lost uh, perhaps you know thousands of troops in the the river as a result of their scorched earth policy. But again, encouraging people to 
Recall the, the words Russian, the association of Russians and scorched earth policy, which uh, is, you know, obviously uh, setting fire to everything as you're deserting to make sure there are no supplies left for your enemies as they're uh, advancing on you when we get to 1812. The other thing, just in terms of the, um, the peace with uh, uh, Russia that we're building up to, whilst it was obviously uh, in Russia's best interest to sue for peace at this stage because they were getting their backsides well and truly handed to them by Napoleon. Do you think it's also fair to say that Napoleon really wanted peace? Uh, he, he didn't really want an invasion of Russia at this stage. He'd been on campaign for 10 months. His troops were tired. They were worn out despite their brief rest in uh, Poland, in Warsaw. And, uh, you know, he'd been away from Paris for a long time. He was still, you know, in a relatively delicate political situation in Paris. He wanted to get back to his capital. He wanted to pursue a lot of his political reforms. So it was really in both of their interests to conclude a peace at this stage, wasn't it? Sure it was. Uh, those people out there who see Napoleon as a warmonger don't really want to hear this. But Napoleon wanted peace after Austerlitz. He was relatively easy on the Austrians. He didn't pursue the Russians, thinking that would send them a, a peaceful signal. He didn't want to fight the Prussians. It was the Prussians who declared war on him. He had no interest in fighting them. He did not want to have to fight the Russians again. Uh, if in May, even after Eylau and you know his uh, little... Uh, a rendezvous with, uh, with uh, Maria Valeska uh, if the Russians had simply withdrawn back into Russia it's very doubtful that Napoleon would have pursued them there would have been no point to it he, he didn't want to conquer Russia to control Russian territory <clears throat> he would have gone home having won against everyone who who chose to, to, to oppose him. Uh, so certainly Napoleon wants peace at Tilson. He wants it desperately because if nothing else, he thinks that'll send the signal to the British, his most intractable foe, uh, that it's time for there to be uh, peace in Europe. So they put this beautiful raft uh, out in the center of the uh, river, okay, out in the middle of the Neiman River. And by the way, in my book, and I think I sent you this for the website, I've got this uh, gold snuff box that shows uh, the raft, it shows the river with the, the soldiers on each side, it shows the Tsar and the Emperor embracing, and, and the King of Prussia standing off to one side, looking a little bit forlorn. It's, it's, it's just a a wonderful piece, and it gives you a sense of what what it must have looked like because it's from the period. And you know, Napoleon thinks of <coughs> Alexander as kind of a brash young fellow, and Alexander didn't think much better of of Napoleon. Uh, they they each row across from 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 their respective sides, uh, hoping to arrive there in time. Uh, Napoleon's kind of clever or, or lucky, I'm not sure which. He, he actually gets there early and he's there to greet Alexander, which sort of makes him the alpha male, I suppose. Uh, but having won the victories, uh, he's the alpha male anyway. Uh, but they get along well. 
they really chatted up nicely. Now, Napoleon was quite the charmer, and, and, and he quickly brought Alexander under his spell, but Alexander could be pretty charming, too, I, I suspect. You know, you're, you're taught to be charming, I imagine, when you're a czar of Russia in the uh, 19th century. And they become fairly decent friends as a result of this, uh, of this meeting. Uh, now, this is on June 25th. And so they sit there and they chat and they get along well. And, and uh, I think you may have a quote you want to give us a little bit later. Uh, lots. But on the 20th. Now, for example. Oh, no, I've got lots of quotes. I'll, I'll let you finish and then I'll fill in all my little bits and pieces. Well, I'm always worried that I'll steal one of your quotes. But, oh, uh, I, I would be honored for you to steal one of my quotes, sir. Actually, I think I've stolen one of your stories already by mistake uh, with Napoleon <laughs> arriving on the, on the raft sooner. Uh, and again, dear listeners, uh, some of these little side comments are, are based on the fact that we did this before and, <laughs> and we have a little bit of an idea, therefore, what each of us is, is planning on saying and, 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 and uh, that makes for an, an interesting uh, approach. At any rate, the next day, the 26th of June, uh, King William of Prussia shows up. Now, King William, of course, is uh, treated really disdainfully uh, by uh, Napoleon. And that continues. After a couple of days on the raft, uh, maybe they're getting seasick, I don't know. Napoleon was a soldier, not a sailor. But they move into much nicer quarters uh, in town and continue uh, their negotiations. Uh, and it goes all the way to uh, July 7th, at which time uh, Russia and France sign an alliance, not just a treaty of peace, but an alliance an agreement to support each other, to be friends. Uh, and it's called the Treaty of, of, of Tilsit. Uh, Prussia, of course, takes it on the chin, not surprisingly, because the Russians have to have been unhappy uh, with, with Prussia as well. Uh, the, the new kingdom of Westphalia is carved out of, uh, of, of Prussian territory and, and Napoleon's brother, Jerome, uh, becomes the king there. Uh, the Grand Duchy of Warsaw uh, is carved out of mostly Prussian territory. Uh, this is as close to a free and independent Poland uh, as the Poles are going to get from Napoleon. And it's not everything they had hoped for, but it's far more than anyone else was, uh, was prepared to give them. Uh, they were nominally under the rule of the King of Saxony, but the King of Saxony uh, wasn't going to interfere with them much. Uh, they were also in the French Empire itself. Napoleon wasn't going to mess with them too much. He gave them a constitution. Uh, he gave them freedom. Uh, and he gave them, more importantly of all, his protection against anyone else who didn't like it. And, of course, who most didn't like it? Well, that would be Russia. Russia had never wanted an independent Poland next to them. They didn't believe in independent Poles. They didn't like the idea of a French empire uh, with its soldiers being so close to them. Probably a little bit like they, the Russians today really didn't appreciate the expansion of NATO right up to their borders. No matter how much uh, America and, 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 and the NATO allies uh, said to Russia, uh, in, in, in the uh, 20th century that, that this is a peaceful movement 
uh, not to worry about your old adversary now having uh, their member states right on your border. Uh, President uh, uh, Putin and others are, are, are not real thrilled with that. Well, it's very, very much the same thing in the 19th century. Uh, Russia was used to having, you know, buffer states of Prussia, nothing else, uh, and Austria between them and France. And uh, now all of a sudden a, a, a satellite nation, uh, if nation is the word, uh, in the French Empire uh, is right on the border of Russia. And they're not too happy about it. But there's not much they can do about it. Uh, you know, they're swearing an alliance, and so obviously if French soldiers are there, those are your friends now, and so it can't be all that bad. And Russia did pretty well elsewhere. Uh, she didn't lose any, any other significant territory. Uh, she got the friendship of the French and the alliance and protection of, 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 of the French. Uh, Napoleon and, 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 and Tsar Alexander became friends, as I said. Uh, Russia only had to, to, to agree to try to act as an intermediary to negotiate peace with, with, with Great Britain, which was in everybody's interest. Nobody wanted war at that point. And uh, if, if that didn't work out, if England was, was continued to be intractable, uh, then Russia agreed to join in on this new continental system, this European continental uh, economic blockade that Napoleon had come up with uh, and, uh, and, and, and now Russia would join. So this was, this was good news. <clears throat> I mean, let's think just for a moment and then I'll stop talking and let you jump in. I mean, think about where Napoleon was right now. He had defeated all comers, 1805, 1806, 1807. He had beaten the Austrians, the Prussians, and the Russians. He controlled all of Western, Central, Eastern Europe. He, by now, had completely solidified his situation in Italy. Okay? Uh, all of his old enemies were gone. You know, whatever France had in Italy was pretty safe. He's got brothers on various thrones all around Europe. Okay? Uh, his, his brother Joseph will soon be on the throne of Spain. His brother-in-law, Joachim Murat, will be on the throne of Naples. Uh, everybody loves him. His people in France, I mean, he's a hero to them. I mean, nothing makes you a popular leader any better than great military victories against your enemies. Uh, so, there sits Napoleon. Really, he's at the top of the world right now. He is on his game as much as you can imagine. There's only this one little thorn, and that, of course, is Great Britain. Great Britain refuses to make peace. If Great Britain had made peace, the history of the world would have been so much different. I know that, that many of my British friends will, will not like to hear me say this, but the fact of the matter is uh, Napoleon was in a situation now where if there had been true peace... All of these countries could have begun to work on things that would improve the lives of their people, improve their economies, work on inter, you know, increased international trade, both within the continent but in between the continent and, and Great Britain. Uh, 
Some of Napoleon's allies weren't real thrilled about it. Uh, Austria is still a little bit bitter over Austerlitz, but you know, if peace had broken out and trade had increased and Austria starts getting richer, uh, I have a feeling that things would have been good for a long time. But the fact that Great Britain refused to make peace and thus provided a, a beacon to follow for any other people and on the continent who, who, who might decide they didn't like Napoleon so much after all, uh, that changed the whole nature of the game. And, and I'm sad to say, uh, much for the worse. Indeed. So let me... Uh fill in some of the little bits and pieces around Tilsit because I I mean I, I really like this period of uh, Napoleonic history. I, I tend to think sure. that this is quite possibly the high point of Napoleon's military and political career. It uh, as you say he's pretty much got all of Europe at his feet. He has signed a not just a peace, but a, what seems on the surface to be a very healthy alliance with Russia. And uh, from here, it all, it all starts to unravel a little bit, basically, uh, from here on in. There are a few more high points, but 1807 is a wonderful time. Now, uh, Bourrienne, Napoleon's uh, private secretary at the time, wrote uh, afterwards, the interview at Tilsit is one of the culminating points of modern history, and the waters of the Neiman reflected the image of Napoleon at the height of his glory. David Chandler goes on to write, This is a point that can be argued, but there is no doubt that superficially at least Napoleon's meteoric career reached its apogee between June 25th and July 9th, 1807. The full political and diplomatic ramifications of this celebrated occasion fall beyond the scope of this study, but it cannot be passed over in silence. One interesting account of what took place at the initial meeting is recorded in the memoirs of General Savare, the future Duke of Rovigo. And this is a little bit of detail about the raft and the, the actual meeting that you alluded to earlier. Sure. Savary wrote, The Emperor Napoleon, whose courtesy was manifest in all his actions, <laughs> not something that people usually associate with Napoleon, by the way, his courtesy, ordered a large... Well, Savary, of course, is uh, going to be somewhat biased on Napoleon's side, but, but I use him as, a, as a, a pretty good source on a number of things. He ordered a large raft to be floated in the midst of the river, on which was built a well-enclosed and elegantly decorated apartment, having two doors on opposite sides, each of which opened into an antechamber. The work could not have been better executed in Paris. The roof was surmounted by two weathercocks, one displaying the eagle of Russia, the other the eagle of France. The two outer doors were also surmounted by the eagles of the two countries. The raft was precisely in the middle of the river, with the two doors of the saloon facing the two opposite banks. The two sovereigns appeared on the banks of the river and embarked at the same moment, but the Emperor Napoleon, having a good boat manned by marines of the guard, arrived first on the raft, entered the room and went to the opposite door which he opened and then stationed himself on the edge of the raft to receive the Emperor Alexander, who had not yet arrived, not having such good oarsmen as the Emperor Napoleon. And then he records the first words of the Tsar on this auspicious occasion were, I hate the English as much as you do yourself, to which Napoleon replied, if that is the case, then peace is already made. <laughs> I love that. That's very good. And that's, then That's very good. That's classic. And then I love like some of the uh, quotes from Napoleon and Alexander about each other that they wrote to their confidants. It's just amazing. Um, 
Napoleon is said to have said of Alexander, "Were Alexander a woman, I think I should fall. I should fall passionately in love with him." Um, you know, he said to him, "If I am ever obli- if I am ever again obliged to fight Austria, you shall lead an army corps of thirty thousand men under my orders. Like that, you will learn the art of war." I, you know, they really sort of had this passionate male bonding thing going on. Alexander gushed to a French diplomat, why didn't I meet him before? The veil is rent and the time of error is past. I will be your secretary, said Napoleon, and you will be mine. You know, and that's all well and good, although (laughs) you talk about the the czar leading leading, uh, division or whatever you said. Uh, uh, The fact is in 1809, when when, uh, Austria... Uh, gets a little bit cantankerous, and we have the the Wagram campaign. Uh, the Czar was uh, not exactly leaping forward in this alliance to be supportive. He had given, he gave rather in, in 1809, very lukewarm, very 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 tepid uh, support <laughs> to Napoleon. <clears throat> Napoleon didn't do much about it, didn't say too much, uh, but. Uh, you know, talk is cheap. Kind of reminds me of Hitler and Il Duce during World War Two, doesn't it? Yeah, well, sure, we'll come to your aid. Oh, not, there's, there's, not this week. We've got a lot on. There's, there's, there's a lot to that, and and of course, alliances throughout history are 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 full of of examples where it sounds a lot better than it really is. Uh, but in 1807, that's all in the future. Everything looks good. Everything is, you know, coming up roses, as the song says. And and Napoleon and the Tsar, you know, they're good buddies. I don't know about this. I would fall madly in love with them and stuff, but who no, knows? I've got more quotes. Uh, Al- Alexander said to, wrote to his sister, Catherine, Just imagine my spending days with Bonaparte, talking for hours quite alone with him. I ask you, does not all this seem like a dream? <laughs> well, sure. But remember, that, that makes more sense coming from, from the Tsar. Because, after all, Napoleon is the great Napoleon. And, uh, you know, to, to, spend, to spend time with, with someone of, of Napoleon's stature uh, for a, a young and impressionable person like the Tsar, uh, that must have been something. When you, you know, say young and impressionable, young. their ages weren't that much different, were they, at this stage? Well, but he's, he's generally the more naive of the two. Yeah, uh, he had he had had a much more isolated uh, uh, existence. He, he became had, emperor by having his father assassinated when Napoleon yes, exactly. took control, took power. You know, he had not had to work his way up as Napoleon had. So, no, I think that it's uh, it's it's fair to say that uh, that he was more impressionable. He was the junior partner of the friendship and of the alliance. Now, the uh, if the other thing I wanted to make a note of at this stage, because it's, again, um, critically important to the rest of the story, you mentioned the um, way that Queen Louisa of Prussia fell at Napoleon's feet and begged for uh, compassion, and um, Napoleon basically said uh, no and treated them rather harshly, and his foreign minister... The infamous, and I, and I think, you know, rather than Alexander and Caesar, we should do a whole series on Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord, Prince de Benevente, Benevent, Benevent, I can never say that, Benevente, um, 
Napoleon's foreign minister Talleyrand uh, resigned at this point over the Franco-Russian alliance and and saying that he felt that Russia uh, Prussia was harshly done by and Napoleon didn't really involve him a lot in these negotiations which you know normally you would have your foreign minister very involved in a, an alliance with a, another head of state like this but he was kind of cut out of the action resigned and was really out of Napoleon's uh, circle then until 1812 and of course in that time managed to align himself with uh, interests not aligned to Napoleon and uh, as I think you and I have said a few times in the series and no doubt we'll say quite a few times more in future episodes Talleyrand is one of those when, when you read Napoleonic history you know I find myself time and time again thinking to myself why did Napoleon just have this guy shot and there was a famous quote Napoleon what did he call him David uh, shit in a silk stocking <laughs> To which the minister coldly retorted once Napoleon had left, pity that so great a man should have been so badly brought up. Well, you know, uh, don't get me started on Talleyrand. I have, I have some, uh, at least one very dear friend who is quite a fan of Talleyrand and, and uh, uh, likes to say that Talleyrand was always looking out for the interest of France. And if they... If, if those interests coincided with Napoleon's, then great. If not, then France came first. Uh, I would always retort to that. Talleyrand looked out for exactly one thing and one thing only, and that was Talleyrand. Talleyrand. <laughs> uh, and and yes, in my opinion, he and Fouché should have been shot early on. Uh, had Napoleon done that, he would still be emperor today. <laughs> uh, no doubt, and you know, there's a. I, I, I seriously, I would love. We should at least do a full episode on Talleyrand at the end of the series because I remember reading Duff Cooper's biography on him a number of years ago, and it's just a fabulous story. I mean, I really enjoy Talleyrand as well, but purely from his Machiavellian nature. I mean, he was just the ultimate guy for looking out for his own interest, as you said, and changing sides, and he was a double agent, uh, you know, pretending to be working for Napoleon in 1812, but really, you know, secretly negotiating with the Prussians and the Austrians and the Russians and anyone else who would pay him. He was, uh, you know, a, a, a quite a postmodern character in a lot of ways, as was Napoleon, which perhaps is uh, why they, you know, got along so well for many years. Of course, Talleyrand was instrumental in helping Napoleon's rise as much as he was instrumental in helping his downfall. So anyway, well, he was, he was, and he wasn't. You will recall from our episode on Egypt that it was that very same Charles Maurice de Talleyrand uh, that didn't bother to to tell uh, the Emir of uh, Turkey. Uh, that the French were going to be going into Egypt to restore Turkey's control. And as a result, Napoleon had to fight not one but two Turkish armies, uh, which uh, greatly diminished his chances for success in that campaign. Uh, somehow Napoleon, uh, rather, uh, Talleyrand simply forgot to uh, let let the, uh, the emir know. So, you know... Uh, even at the very earliest stages of Napoleon's career, Talleyrand was looking out for Talleyrand, 
or at least not looking up particularly for Napoleon. Now, why he did this, uh, you know, who, who knows? Uh, nevertheless, Talleyrand is not one of my favorite characters. He is, however, as you say, one of the most intriguing and fascinating and colorful characters uh, from from this time, uh, and you know there, that that can be no no doubt about it. But I'm reminded of the quote, and I don't have it in front of me right now. But uh, many years later, uh, when uh, Talleyrand presents uh, 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 Fouché uh, to the new King Louis, someone writes it was uh, a crime leaning on the arm of vice. Or, or vice versa, and I'll have to get that quote. I don't have it in front of me. And and boy, does that sum up those two, crime and vice. <laughs> now, before we wrap up this episode, um, you know, we've talked about the Treaty of Tilsit. I, I'm just wondering, David, have we covered the Battle of Trafalgar in enough detail, or did we skip over that rather lightly? Well, I don't think we've touched the Battle of Trafalgar. You know, I I have a... As, as some of you may know, I'm, I'm going in for surgery in a month or so for a, 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 a stomach disorder and having to do with uh, excessive acid reflux and so on. And, and to talk about Trafalgar would simply be to aggravate my condition <laughs> dramatically, and I'm not sure my health could, could handle it, uh, Cameron. In fact, I'm not so sure what kind of a friend you are, knowing, knowing my delicate condition to, to bring Trafalgar up, but we can discuss Trafalgar uh, perhaps after my surgery when I'm uh, you know, better able to withstand the pressure. Well, I, I, I was just conscious of the fact that we're, we're already in 1807, and uh, I think we got carried away with the Battle of Austerlitz, and we jumped on to Hainer Alstedt and uh, just conveniently skipped over the, the Trafalgar episode. Obviously, Napoleon wasn't directly involved, but I know all of our Anglophile listeners will never forgive us if we don't uh, cover the uh, very uh, critical Battle of Trafalgar. So maybe we should... Make a note to spend some time on that in our next episode. Well, we certainly will. And I, and I think our listeners realize that it is virtually impossible to do everything strictly in a linear fashion. Uh, we, we talk about how this will be a linear discussion of Napoleon's life. But sometimes you really, for the sake of continuity, to continue a thread, to continue uh, explaining something that's of underlying importance, uh, to, to the overall picture, sometimes you really have to carry it forward. And for us to have stopped after Austerlitz uh, and gone to Trafalgar and then, and, then, and then sort of back to the continent, I think would not have been as, as useful as doing it this way. But you're quite right. All of my kidding aside, Trafalgar was an extraordinarily important victory for the British. Uh, and, 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 and while I am no expert on, on uh, naval battles and so on, we can certainly at the very least talk about the implications of Trafalgar. And if I recall correctly, I've got a substantial uh, amount of material on Trafalgar uh, in, my, uh, in, in, in my book, Napoleon for Dummies, and also in Napoleon's Road to Glory. So I have no problem. You know, you take... You take the good with the bad uh, when when you study history. You 
you, you, you have to recognize when things go well and you have to recognize when things don't go so well. And uh, I've, got, uh, I've got a whole chapter or at least a big portion of a chapter uh, on, on, on Trafalgar uh, and uh, in, in, in Napoleon for Dummies. Indeed you do. And, um, uh, oh, I had a point there. And, uh, sure you did. Uh, oh, I, I was just going to say, especially for uh, those of us that were um, educated under the Commonwealth, it, you know, it's Trafalgar is probably one of the things that most people know about Napoleon. If you ask, I guess, the average person brought up in the, under the Commonwealth what they know about Napoleon, they'll probably say Trafalgar and Waterloo. Of course, it's the two great uh, defeats of the French that you get taught under the <laughs> under the British system. Yes, and <laughs> and it, it it has to be said that one of one of my favorite cities uh, in the world is London. I, I love to go to London. Oh, stop uh, sucking uh, up, Markham. Oh, hush. I I I love it. I love the people. I love the theater. I love I love the pubs. Perhaps most of all the pubs. Uh, but it, you love it. it. You love said. its uh, its uh, closeness to Scotland and your uh, medicine. That's correct. Mm. There is there is also that. Actually, the the uh, duty free shops at Heathrow have have, have quite a, a bit of my medication available, and I usually do partake uh, in excess. Now, to get to my point, if I may, <laughs> uh, the two of the places I most enjoy going to in London are are wonderful. For people watching, uh, the, the first one is Leicester Square. I mean, to me, Leicester Square is 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 really the the, the evening heartthrob of London. There's so much going on there, so many people. There's also a Napoleon Casino there. Uh, at least there there was until until recently. I've been back for a couple of years. Uh, but another place that's fabulous to go to to watch people, which I really enjoy doing, uh, is Trafalgar Square. Now you talk about monumental. There's these huge towers, an enormous statue of, of Admiral Lord Nelson and all this stuff. And these young people are sitting there, you know, putting their feet in the little pools and this, that, and the other thing. And it's fun to watch, although, as you can imagine, I feel a, a certain discomfort, you know, in, in seeing all of this, this, this glorious excess in the name of a of, 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 of a defeat for someone who I obviously think very highly of, but you can't take a, you can't take away from it. It was a, it was a great victory and a very important victory. But you console yourself uh, the, knowing that Nelson died in the process. Well, I, I I don't console myself with that because Nelson was to the British a hero, a, a, a great uh, admiral. Although it may very well be he's a hero at least in part because he died at Trafalgar. That does have a tendency to to get people to think of you in heroic terms. Another thing that I, I sort of get a chuckle out of, you said, you know, what, are the, what, what did the British people learn about Napoleon? It's, it's Trafalgar and Waterloo. When the, the, uh, the Euroliner uh, was, was put in, the, the, the channel, the, the, the train between London and Paris that goes under the English Channel, uh, the, the French and, if I recall correctly, is Garde Nord, the northern station, a relatively innocuous uh, uh, station. Uh, but the British 
which is almost a little bit on the nasty side. But when the French come across on the on the on the train, the Eurostar, uh, and 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 the light from the train, they find themselves at the Waterloo station. And and I must say, somebody was pretty clever by half uh, when they came up with that. On the other hand, you go off the train up the stairs, and there's a little pub there called Bonaparte. So it's not all bad. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, I think maybe next next week, just as we've sort of, maybe we take a break at Tilsit and we look at Trafalgar and Spain. Let's get it all out of the way in one hit. Well, it's going to be hard to get Spain out of the way in one hit, although maybe, but certainly we can look at Trafalgar, we can look at Spain, because now we're going to move into two areas where things don't go so swimmingly for Napoleon. Everything we've talked about so far has really been a buildup of the the Napoleonic legend. I mean, Napoleon the Conqueror, Napoleon the I can't be beat. Uh, but he was beat, and and he did have disasters. And as you suggested, 1807 uh, could very well be. I would say 1807 to 1810. Take your pick. But really, we really are at the the peak of Napoleon's power, the peak of his popularity. I think his personal peak. Uh, I think when he divorces Josephine and, and, and takes on Marie Louise and so forth, I, I think all of these things begin a, a something of a downward uh, a trend, nothing against Marie Louise. But uh, next week, Trafalgar and maybe at, the, at a minimum the beginning of Spain, I think would be a good idea. And I'm just going to take... So dear listeners, well, thank you for listening. I'm going to take the liberty of closing this episode by reading from the Book of Markham. Imperial Glory, the Bulletins of Napoleon's Grand Armée. This is uh, the proclamation of His Majesty and King to the Grand Armée at the Imperial Camp of Tilsit, June 22nd, 1807. I won't read the beginning of it. I'll just read the last two paragraphs where he says, From the banks of the Vistula, we have reached the banks of the Neiman with the rapidity of the eagle. You celebrated at Austerlitz the anniversary of the coronation. You celebrated this year, in in an appropriate manner, the Battle of Marengo, which put an end to the war of the Second Coalition. Frenchmen, you have been worthy of yourselves and of me. You will return to France covered with laurels after having obtained a glorious peace which carries with it the guarantee of its duration. It is time that our country should live at rest, secure from the malignant influence of England. My benefits shall prove to you my gratitude and the full extent of the love I bear you, Napoleon.